Welcome to our inaugural episode of the third season of the Voices Dialogue. The topic for this season is one that's fraught with complexity, misunderstandings, stigma, and a whole lot of, avoid of avoidance strategies. That's all about mental health. In particular, mental health facing adolescents and the youth coming out of two and a half years of isolation and untold emotional and neurological impact, especially in emerging economies in Asia. I'm Rohit Segal, Chief Strategist and Editor at The Voices Project Asia. And let me first explain for our new listeners and old who we are and why we do what we do. Well, we're a group of like-minded health editors, researchers, technical advisors, and writers who've essentially spent a career in trying to track the evolution of healthcare in parts of the developing world, particularly Asia Pacific, but not just restricted to Asia Pacific, other parts that are quite similar as well. The Voices Project's ultimate objective is to let the voices be heard and amplified with a view to identifying and promoting public health priorities. We are a neutral, independent, not nonprofit platform that aims to produce deep insights and knowledge on public health issues rooted in local circumstances, experiences, and divergences. By empowering voices, what we seek is really to expand our collective understanding of how public healthcare issues take form in various regions' context. Uh, it should be said that our funding comes from our sister concern, Sovereign Health Private Limited, a well-established Singapore-registered healthcare technologies and medical education consultancy, and stems from a singular passion for improving public health issues facing our world today. Uh, we have no vested interests with pharma, tobacco, nor alcohol, and our technical advisors and collaborative partners to the World Health Organization's Western Pacific Region Office. So with that out of the way, let me uh, start talking about what we're going to talk in this particular episode. What you're going to hear throughout this season is a diverse set of voices who each represent a holistic outlook on mental health and perceived disorders, but they also hold strong opinions on what needs to be done about it. For our first episode, to help us make sense of it all, I'm joined by Geetika Malhotra, a qualified and registered psychotherapist and counselor, trained in Singapore, the UK and Australia, and comes with a broad and deep appreciation of families struggling with emotional and physical mental disorders. Geetika, welcome. Thanks so much for joining the show. Hi, Rohit. Thank you for having me. Well, tell me, in a field like psychiatry and psychotherapy, I'm sure even our listeners need to get their bearings on this one, it's not always easy to measure success or to know what success looks like. So big question, what made you get into this field and why? Well, Rohit, before embarking on this professional journey, I was an advertising and marketing professional, but I always had uh, you know, focused more on the psychological aspects of my jobs. And after having kids, I finally decided to take a career, make a career switch towards my first love, that is psychology. Always had an interest in uh, existential aspects of the human condition, the universality, as well as individuality of the human psyche has always fascinated me. And I have a strong desire to make a meaningful impact as I set out to, to help people through life struggles. Um, another thing to your point, Rohit, uh, yes, it's difficult to measure, but, you know, uh, 
success in our field really means when our clients no longer need us mm. and they are ready to embark on their journey with self resilience and uh, you know self confidence and love for their life so well that is a big enough measure yeah that's true actually it's uh, takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of perseverance but yeah um, uh, the end result is always worth it um well we got a lot of things and areas to cover off on because this topic is something that is almost like trying to grasp water um so let me start with i guess um the first real area that we want to dive into and that is health systems in large parts of the world southeast asia where we are um in particular have not yet adequately responded to the burden of mental disorders and this is according to who and as a consequence the gap between the need for treatment and the provision of treatment is large not only large it's actually widening as a result of the last 2 years of pandemic isolation and disruption so i guess in the most holistic of ways i mean what's driving this and are we allowing too many young sufferers to fall through the cracks in the system uh well this is not an asia specific problem rohit uh, no country has got it right and a large number of cases in the younger age groups have been reported in many western countries as well having said that western countries are ahead of the curve in terms of the accessibility and quality of mental health care services they provide discussions about mental health problems are more open regular flow of information data collection evaluation and monitoring is also more prevalent as mental health services are at a different life cycle stage hmm. so for example in the uk in the nhs regular you know surveys and studies are regularly regularly conducted to gauge overall performance even individual professionals within the system conduct independent research studies so the task of keeping up with changing times is shared by many individuals right right uh you know and uh in asia governments and policy makers are more heavily heavily reliant on informal family and community support systems collectivist societies of asia are a great resource for the governments and individuals but their presence does lead to a little bit of complacency and a slightly slower establishment of mental health services um you know for example saving face is very important for families and communities in asia this means that by acknowledging the needs of mental health care for an individual or a minority group the group surrounding them may feel blamed and responsible mm-hmm. so the first knee jerk reaction is to stigmatize the issue or the sufferer or deny it and as a result a lot of unspoken and deeply entrenched so societal barriers are created for access and delivery of mental health services they tend to feel guilt and shame in their minds and bodies and the denials can be so visceral that the sufferers can perceive them as nonverbal threats and taboos mm. Mm. this is a very real problem yeah and uh, you know unless governments and policy makers become more actively involved in driving awareness acceptance and accessibility to mental health services it will be difficult to keep pace with rising demand and the gap will only get wider mm. yeah that's true i mean let me let me throw some statistics at you that i think uh, uh, in a way sort of builds on what you've just reflected on in terms of access in particular um it's said according to who that between 76 and 
of people with severe mental disorders receive no treatment for their disorder in low-income and middle-income countries. The corresponding range for high-income countries is about the same, about 70, 35 to 50%, it's not exactly great coverage. A further compounding problem is actually the poor quality of care for those who are actually receiving treatment. So globally, for instance, annual spending on mental health is less than two US dollars per person and less than 25 cents per person in low-income countries. Now, this is where it gets a little, I guess, uh, off kind of skeleton away because with 67% of these financial resources are being allocated to standalone mental hospitals. Now, standalone mental hospitals, while they make great efforts to do you know, great work, the association with poor health outcomes, stigmatization, human rights violations, et cetera, not the greatest of statistics, is it? No, it's not. Uh, and you know, we are looking at a systemic problem, uh, Rohit, you know, uh, so, you know, I, you've asked me a couple of questions here, so I'll address them one by one. Hmm. And uh, I think we've just left another question hanging, which is on your question about uh, teenagers and young people falling through the cracks. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would say that like any other crisis, COVID has exposed cracks in the system. And as we come out of the pandemic restrictions, we really need to reevaluate the healthcare system with particular focus on mental health and take it as an opportunity to revamp, reform, and professionally support the healthcare system to prevent mm. mental health problems. And I highlight prevent, mm. rather than treat them after the fact, after, the, after they become entrenched and cost billions of dollars to governments in terms of advanced treatments. I think WHO has released data and the numbers are not very encouraging that you know depression and anxiety are costing close to uh, uh, one trillion U.S. dollars per annum globally. Mm. Wow! Yeah. Right, and uh, it, to this effect, you know, I would also recommend that when we are looking at young people and teenagers, and we are looking for we are looking at people in the workforce, I would really recommend that ministries of health, manpower, and education work more closely and ensure that they are not only building capability but also holding corporations, schools, and communities accountable for mental health support mm. in terms of acceptability, peer, employee, and family support, not just by hiring an adequate number of counselors, but also by taking measurable steps to promote cultures of equality, diversity, and inclusion. So EDI needs to not just be restricted to race and nationalities, but it needs to cover human conditions as well. Mm. Um, different sectors and sections of society are linked very closely and intricately. And the process of reform needs to be directed not only from governments to communities, families, individuals, but also the other way around. So what I'm really saying is that it's, it's the system, it's the different layers of the system that are so closely connected that everyone needs to have skin in the game and own their contributions with high standards of accountability. Yeah. No, that's true. It's almost like it takes a, a village to raise a child in a way, doesn't it? You need to have more uh, coming together and collaboration of. Now, consideration here um, could potentially then, looking at redirecting funding towards mm -hmm. community-based services. You mentioned the prevention angle before it reaches treatment or primary care. Uh, 
including integration of mental health into more general healthcare settings, you know, whether that's uh, sexual reproductive child health, uh, communicable diseases, HIV AIDS, and other chronic you know, disease programs, could that potentially be uh, an area from a funding uh, perspective, rather than putting whatever funding there is into the treatment side of the equation, could community-based services be an area that could actually benefit? Absolutely, Rohit. Uh, again, many layers to this question, and I think it can and must be integrated. Mental health care has to be in integrated in overall health care, in the care economy. So, you know, it's, it's widely accepted and known that there is, you know, there is comorbidity when it comes to mental health. There can be, not for everyone, but for a lot of patients out there, there is comorbidity. If the agenda is to provide quality and affordable care, then the answer is that we need to integrate mental health services at all touch points. And GPs need to be trained to look out for mental health issues in addition to physical ailments. Mm -hmm. By having multiple approach areas for common people, mental health triage can be conducted by professionals in safe, confidential and non-judgmental spaces, and then traffic can be directed accordingly. Mm -hmm. So here I would like to say that, you know, given the setups we have, suppose we have a hundred uh, community clinics in uh, a district. We need to ensure that we have as many mental health care screening platforms. So that's what I mean by integration. Wherever you have a medical clinic, you need to have a mental health care setup as well. So, and it, you know, the setup needs to be a bit more thought of, a, more th a lot of thought needs to go into it. It can't follow the traditional format that has been followed in many countries. And by this, I really mean that, you know, uh, uh, we need to set up ancillary support for those in need. So in order to elaborate this a bit, not every individual problem needs to be handled with medication. And more often than not, therapy counseling is needed in combination to needed in combination with medication for long-term recovery and prevention of relapses. That's very important. We are looking at long-term healing. We are not looking at uh, a temporary relief and then moving on and having recurrence uh, in the system and higher costs to the government and to the overall economy. So by setting up counseling and therapy centers, the healthcare systems can be supported at multiple, le multiple levels by providing screening services and routing clients to appropriate healthcare services and provide customized care, eventually increasing efficacy and impact. Even within the hospital setups, I would say the quality of facilities need to be improved. And this includes physical aspects as well. You know, you need to create spaces that allow peace and privacy away from crowded spaces, spaces that encourage openness, and also hire quality counselors and therapists supporting these spaces. So we really need to look at what and where we are incentivizing mm -hmm. currently and where we need to improve. Let me, let me pick up on the incentivized point for a minute, because um, I think to, to sort of capture what you've sort of said and you've outlined quite articulately is that could not hospital service providers relook at the gaps in resourcing that can ensure mental health uh, comes together more as an integrated part 
of overall practice, uh, prevent preventable screening, diagnos diagnosis, even treatment if necessary, rather than just being left uh, to itself. Now, you mentioned incentivizing and the incentive aspect. Now, for our listeners, this is quite an interesting uh, part of this whole ecosystem or Rubik's Cube that is mental health. Um, why, Gitika, is it that in this sort of area, primary mental health professionals or psychotherapists are not incentivized nor remunerated? Um, before you answer that, let me just give a statistics for our listener, uh, listeners. Um, overall, when you look at it from specialized and general health workers dealing with mental health in low-income and middle-income countries, almost half the world's population lives in countries where on average there's one psychiatrist to serve 200,000 or more people and other mental health care providers who are trained in the use of psychosocial interventions are even scarcer. So coming back to this incentivization and the integration factor, when it's already so hard to find the right specialists, what's, what's coming in the way of the incentivized angle? And talk to us a bit about the value of incentivization. Well, uh, the value of incentivization is immense. We need to see systemically again uh, where we are putting the rewards uh, in, when it comes to mental health. So if you just look at, you know, I'm not just going to focus on mental health profession as such. I'm looking at the whole care economy. And I would like to point out a few things here. One is, if you look at the government's incentives, it's very important for governments to focus on mental health condition because it's costing, like I said, and these are reported figures, one trillion US dollars per year globally. And that's a very high cost. And I think in large parts, it's uh, it could be redirecting, redirected into uh, preventive measures rather than curing when it is too late. Um, so, you know, and, and the government needs to acknowledge, and I think at many levels they do, uh, but there needs to be a more overt acknowledgement of the fact that mental health conditions contribute to poor health outcomes, premature death, human rights violations, and global and national economic loss. Mm. Uh, when you look at corporations, well, they need to widely acknowledge that they all, what they already know, that a healthier workforce means more productivity. When mental well-being of employees is supported, it is tantamount to early intervention, which eventually leads to less absenteeism and cost to company. Yeah. So this, again, needs a more open acknowledgement, mm -hmm. and policies need to be changed according to that. Mm -hmm. Now, coming to mental health professionals, I think, uh, you know, uh, there are many layers to this. One is that the profession needs to be more regulated and protected in Asia, which currently, uh, you know, there's a lot to be desired here. And by this, I really mean uh, uh, two things. One is that we need to make sure that mental health professionals earn a decent living. So currently, you know, mental health professionals, we spend hundreds of hours doing free work and our training is not short. At minimum, you need to train for two years mm -hmm. to be uh, a good professional. And this is at minimum. And there is ongoing training that happens over the years to make sure that we are up to date with what is happening. There are lots of new studies and researches coming and lots of new techniques and approaches that are coming. And we need to make sure uh, that we need, we need to get trained in those. Mm -hmm. So uh, if people are not earning well enough and they're expected to do a lot of free work, 
and mental health continues to get relegated to the charitable and non-government organization level, mm. uh, more and more people are going to move away from this or quit it midway. And uh, young and bright talent is not going to get attracted to this field. It's going to be a continued challenge. So what happens in mental health care also happens in other uh, uh, caregiving sectors, whether you look at old age homes and other places, uh, people are overworked and underpaid. Mm. So more regulation, more protection uh, needs to come in this sector. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, already yes. as the systems are struggling and are already, uh, you know, sort of unable to have the right amount of access, reach or quality, it only stands to reason that there needs to be some policy shifting in the yeah. uh, in order to bring more qualified and just people who have the passion, right? I mean, it's also yes. from, a, from a psychotherapy, psychosocial perspective, uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's really just the ability to know what it takes to understand an emotional. Uh, yeah. yeah, and mental health cannot be delivered at your personal cost. Yeah. It, it is a draining profession. It's a very demanding profession. If we are struggling to make a living, how are we going to support society the way we want to? Mm. So we need, there is more protection and oversight uh, that is needed uh, to encourage more, uh, more and more young and bright people to join the sector. Mm. And then looking at families as well, Rohit, I think normalization and destigmatization through psychoeducation and easier accessibility of good mental health services practical and financial support, all these things are so important to provide to families so that then they can individual, you know, they can support their individual units and uh, the members within the units can have, you know, experience uh, better mental well-being. Mm -hmm. So all in all, I think incentives need to be created at every tier. And if that happens, every little positive action that is taken in every tier there is going to be a profound systemic benefit mm. for everyone to enjoy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm almost seeing a framework or some sort of a protocol that could actually be placed. And I'm sure they probably do exist. And this is why these conversations and you know this, uh, this dialogue is so important because it has us ask these questions that does such uh, policy exist, does sub such incentivizing uh, mechanisms uh, exist that will help support this idea that we can be more preventative, spot the signs earlier, have the right access in a more equitable manner, so many things. But I, I think you bring a very, very valuable point in there and for us to investigate and go a little deeper into this area. But um, let me, uh, I guess, look at it from the perspective coming back to our North Star, the World Health Organization's action plan. Now, for our listeners, uh, and you can find the link in our um, episode uh, below here, but um, the WHO has actually identified action criteria, albeit quite broad. It still is a bit of a, um, a checklist or, or, or tick the boxes uh, for mitigating strategies. Um, and as you've heard from Gitika, it's unfortunately not fully integrated, one should say, into many healthcare uh, policy making. 
So let me read out uh, the four key pillars of what WHO identifies as its action criteria. It's actually gonna be interesting whether we see uh, incentivizing anywhere here, maybe not. So maybe that's a point to, to note. But uh, the first one uh, links and says, uh, mainstream mental health interventions into health poverty reduction, development policies, strategies, and interventions. So pretty much bring it all together, try and have these intervention moments uh, in the places where they're needed the most. The second one is to include people with mental disorders and have them more as seen as vulnerable and marginalized groups who require prioritized attention and engagement. Now we might add the issue of double-edged sword, is it? The stigmatization might actually come in here or something, we don't know, but that's something to consider. The third one is uh, explicitly include mental health within general and priority health policies, plans, and research agendas, including non-communicable diseases, HIV AIDS, women's health, child and adolescent health, as well as through horizontal programs and partnerships. And here's a good call out to the Global Health Workforce Alliance that does some tremendous work um, and other international and regional partnerships. So try and bring or weave together policies and plans. I think either as you were mentioning earlier together alongside many other ongoing programs and initiatives. And the last one uh, outlines to say, support the creation and strengthening of associations and organizations of people with mental disorders and psychosocial disabilities, as well as families and carers, and their integration into existing disability organizations and facilitate dialogue between these groups, health workers and government authorities in health, human rights, disability, education, employment, the judiciary and social sectors. So in a way, trying to culminate all of this into bringing uh, folks who are suffering from any form of uh, mental uh, social disorders into a, uh, a more productive uh, and a life well-lived space. Uh, that's for our listeners to sort of get more familiar with what the action criteria was. But um, Kitika, what, 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 are, what are your perspectives and thoughts or add-ons uh, that you would see in this? Uh, well, I think the guidelines are very helpful uh, and very well thought of, uh, Rohit, and I'm very essential. I think all the countries uh, should take these guidelines seriously. But then there is a local and national level improvisation that needs to be done at every stage. So, you know, in order for the countries to adapt and uh, create most efficient ways uh, to deliver mental health services in their regions and their cultures, uh, they also need to be open to evaluation, data monitoring, share learnings and outcomes at an, an international level with each other so that there are shared learnings in the process. And, uh, you know, fine tuning can happen regularly. And I mean this in, in periodic and regular ways, not as a one-off conference thing uh, that could happen, you know, internationally, but something that happens regularly. Um, you know, training subsidies and grants uh, should be given accordingly and countries need to allow assessments. And, uh, you know, there needs, needs to be regard for qualitative data that comes through. Mm. Not just quantitative data, but also qualitative data mm. and respect, privacy and dignity of all people concerned. Uh, the other thing is, uh, you know, it's a race against time. So national governments and communities and corporations need to pick up the baton and work 
together to make mental health care uh, more afford affordable, uh, better quality, and take it to a level where WHO has envisioned it to be. And it needs to be at a much higher level because whatever is being reported here by the WHO, these are recorded figures. Mm. Uh, and I suspect that the real figures would be much more. Mm. So uh, the picture could be much darker than we think it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, I would also add reach to the overall goals that it's not just about countries in general. I think uh, governments need to focus on reach. Mm. How deep are they going within their communities? How prevalent is mental health care becoming? Mm for the most vulnerable vulnerable and disadvantaged sections of the society. Um, and uh, again, the dialogue has to be driven by those in higher authorities. Mm -hmm. The vision and the mission has to be driven. Mm -hmm. Only then change will trickle down. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of mass media communications, in terms of uh, recruiting, in terms of infrastructure setup, in terms of delivery, everything will have to be driven by bigger institutions, which includes governments, corporations, schools, and then there needs to be interconnected accountability. And incentivization. <laughs> and incentivization. Yeah, the key words. <laughs> something for us to look deeper into. Yeah. And, and an overall systemic and societal recognition that, ev that mental health and physical health are inseparable and equally critical. You can't have one or the other. You can't have one without the other, rather. That you have. Oh, it's uh, because, you know, in our next episode, uh, listeners are going to hear about something on those lines, which is quite interesting about self-actualization, self-worth, um, uh, things that also factor in, which are part and parcel of this whole aspect of what really defines mental health. Um, it's almost a spectrum in, in some respects. Um, Gitika, as we come up to our uh, scheduled hour, um, I, I want to leave time to ask you, uh, for our listeners particularly, what, what you know, we've talked about so many factors and things that we need to go deeper into, and our, a lot of our consensus papers coming out of this will, will really sort of you know feed off what we just talked about. But if there's a message or messages that you'd want to leave our listeners with, and you'll leave behind, I guess. Um, we've talked about all the policy factors, all the challenges yet facing us. Uh, but what's what's our what's our message to listeners today and those who might actually resonate with a lot of what you just said. So my first uh, piece of uh, recommendation for individuals, Rohit, is that we need to look at mental health, our personal mental health, with the same passion and commitment as we do with our diet and our physical health. So it needs to be a daily habit whether we are going for a walk or whether we are just grounding ourselves or whether we are meditating or we are going out with friends to relax or have a, you know, a gossip session, if nothing else. Uh, if, on a daily basis, mental health has to be a part of our routine. Our self-care has to be a part of our daily routine. It's not something that is an exception 
once or twice a year. It has to be daily. Uh, the second message to schools and corporations, Rohit, would be to uh, manage your cultures. Do what you need to do to drive good, compassionate cultures. Uh, when an employee or a student has a mental health problem, it doesn't mean that the person is completely dysfunctional and is unable to perform altogether. So use the HR tools, use your experience adequately to match people to their jobs in um, corporations, match uh, students to their talents in schools, and not overly focus on a set way of doing things. But then take responsibility. An organization can drive change faster than an individual. So take that call, use everyone's talent adequately and fine tune things and policies as needed for everyone's well-being. There are gains to be made by everyone, not just the individual. Uh, my message to insurance companies is to keep pace with the changing times. Acknowledge that not, not everything that is outside the set, uh, uh, set of approved uh, treatments, which was created some 50, 60 years ago, uh, is vanity. Mental health care and mental well-being is not vanity. And a lot of other new medical conditions are coming up with climate change and all. So open up your set of offerings and your flexibilities to make sure that you're supporting people adequately in the 21st century. And, uh, and uh, again, coming back to individuals, I would say that if you're suffering, there is no shame or guilt. If you're having a difficulty, you have the right to uh, good mental health services. Seek out help. Seek out help in time before it gets entrenched and before it gets worse. Where it becomes a higher cost to you your family, not in terms of finances only, but also in terms of emotional energy that is given, spent on this. So as cliched as it sounds, prevention is better than cure. Mm. Thank you. Thanks for that. I, I think a lot of that needs to be Sometimes, you know, you, you have to sometimes they say stop and smell the, the flowers, right? I mean, life is also to be reflected on and where journeys are being taken. And that's very, very good Good to hear. Thanks for that, Geetika. Um, I hope for our listeners, this was a, um, a valuable introduction to this um, ocean of, I guess, conversation that we could have on mental health. Our approach has always been to try and sort of grab it from the area of policies, current available um, established understandings, and then try and deconstruct that uh, to where possibly we can identify apparent gaps, challenges, opportunities, but as always find solutions to keep this moving forward and ultimately try and help reach some of the sustainable development goals that we are now looking forward to in this decade. Um, I'd like to, again, thank Geetika uh, for her time um, uh, for this uh, first episode of this season. Uh, for our listeners, please do stay tuned for the following episodes that will look at the perspectives coming from faith, coming from um, uh, clinical science and evidence, coming from personal stories as well. So this is going to be one of the seasons where I think we're going to find 
um, I guess, the culmination of emotional, clinical, and spiritual all coming together. So it's going to be quite exciting. Uh, you can find out more about us at our RSS uh, channels of the Voices Project Asia. You can also visit us over at the uh, voicesprojectasia.org and drop us a line. Um, we'd always love to hear from our listeners and all of the comments and uh, suggestions that you have. But as always, thank you so much for listening in and being a part of this most important uh, conversation. Thanks, everyone, and talk to you soon. Thanks, Kedika. Thank you, Rohit. Thank you for having me.